Let us humble ourselves before this passage. This is the word of the Lord, an unusual psalm. Out of David's 150, there are several that speak of the king, but none of them speak of him loving his bride like this one. This is an exceptional, unique psalm. It is a messianic psalm, and it describes the Messiah. It has wonderful words of truth for Gentiles, that they will be brought and come unto this wonderful husband and become his bride, and that his praise will be uttered throughout all the earth. Let us read it now and consider it and then open it. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Amen Amen and amen. amen. This is the word of the Lord, and this is Psalm 45, and these are wonderful words indeed. I hope you have psalms that you consider and that bless your soul. I hope that you will consider Psalm 45 as one of those psalms. Because of the love story it tells that should comfort your heart. We studied last week about the Lord Jesus Christ being the son of David by a title that he accepts and by fact that he is biologically and spiritually and scripturally and prophetically the son of David. And so this day we have that son of David prophesied by David's psalm here. A psalm of prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. For any listening to this tape, it would behoove you to stop the tape and read Ephesians 5, 25 through 32, because it is such a good New Testament commentary upon the things contained in this psalm. 
And I hope that you will remember Ephesians 5 whenever you look at Psalm 45 because it helps explain it. My brethren, God has chosen to communicate with us by words. He could have communicated to us by food. We could have eaten a pill and it would have communicated knowledge to us. He could have communicated to us by video. He could have communicated to us by Jesus walking on earth for the last 6,000 years. He did not, did not, and did not. He chose to communicate by words. It is my duty to try to present the words in as understandable of a fashion as possible. It is your duty to listen as attentively as possible and open up your imagination and create the word picture that God expects you to have from the words. The Bible is a very picturesque book. It's full of metaphors and similes. It's full of figures of speech. It's full of grandiose language. Because the Lord wants you to have beautiful images in your head, but He chose to communicate by words. If you're dull of hearing because you watch television too much, you will miss the glory of Psalm 45. If you do not pay attention right now and open up your mind and be thinking along with the speaker about a husband and about a wife and about a marriage ceremony and about kings and about palaces and about beautiful garments and about swords and horses and princes and conquering and victory and celebration, you will miss the the pleasure of Psalm 45. God made the choice. We might think that there could have been a better choice, but God made the perfect choice to communicate by words. And so from these words, and all they are are little black marks on a white page, that as we move our eyes along, we use high-speed decoding because these little black marks on a white page mean something in English to us. And what they mean in English are a wonderful scene of a marriage. And we want to have that marriage scene in our eyes. We want it in our hearts because we are the bride of Psalm 45. And we want to delight in the husband and we know him. He is a man. He is the son of David. He is the Lord Jesus Christ of glory. We cannot and dare not try to find specific applications to every word or phrase Because then we would be doing something that we are taught in Scripture not to do. And that is to take the decorative words or phrases and try to apply some specific meaning to them when they are there for decoration, not for sense. You have been taught that with numerous parables of our Lord Jesus Christ where there was a single lesson that you were to get and not to focus on all the intricate details. The details are just decoration to help you get the story. And so we want to get the overall story of a wedding scene, the wedding party, the wedding clothing, the buildings they come from, the buildings they go to, where the bride is prepared, where the king is waiting, the victories that he has, how he changes clothes before the marriage. He takes off his blood, sweat, and dirt-soaked clothes to put on his marriage garments. It's all here in Psalm 45. But we want the general picture because that's what the Lord's giving us. Right. I could take every clause and show you Bible verses that could be pressed to match up with every clause. In fact, I've done it. But it's not worth it. Because the Lord hasn't taught us to use His Word that way. And if I were to do it, you would miss the the number one lesson of the psalm. And that's to have a marriage celebration in your mind. And that's to have a bridegroom in your mind. And a bride in your mind. And how the bride is being addressed to be confident and reassured that her husband is going to delight in her. And those are the lessons... Not for me to take you and compare Scripture with Scripture on every clause. What we want to do is compare Scripture with Scripture for the lesson. And I've already helped you with that by Ephesians chapter 5. And I've already helped you with that by you reading Hebrews 1 and Revelation 19 last evening. If you adore the Lord Jesus Christ and delight in His love for you, this psalm should be precious. To me, Psalm 45 is a measure of your heart. Think about it with me for a minute. I, it's not my only fa- it's not my only psalm. David wrote 150 of them. I like Psalm 18. I like Psalm 18 because when David called upon the Lord, then the Lord heard from heaven and the earth shook. 
And in Psalm 18, you can read statements like, By my God, I have run through a troop, and by my God, I have leaped over a wall. Oh, yes. I love Psalm 18. But this is a different kind of a psalm. This psalm is more spiritually minded than is Psalm 18. This psalm is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lots of men take some degree of pleasure in God. Few take pleasure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is how God has chosen to reveal himself to man. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the object of the Father's approval. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the object of our approval and our love if we follow the Father's advice. God gave his Holy Spirit to to point us to Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual psalm. If you don't delight in these words, you have a spiritual problem. David didn't have a problem writing this. God the Holy Spirit didn't have a problem inspiring it. I may have a problem explaining it. But please delight in these wonderful words. If you glory in the victorious majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation of your soul, then you should revel in this psalm. If you love drama, if you love drama, romance, knights, ladies, kings, queens, and beautiful metaphors... It's all here. Right. It's all in Psalm 45 in 17 short verses. You know, the Apostle Paul loved Psalm 45. Do you know how I know that? Because he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Right. And he quoted from Psalm 45. So see... I knew, I know that he knew it. Because in Hebrews chapter 1, he quoted two of its verses. And since it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, then you know that the Apostle Paul loved it. You should love it. I should love it. We should delight ourselves in these words. You know, the Psalms are a great place to meditate. Out of the 66 book library that God our Father has given us, one of those books is poems. Psalms. And those poems and psalms are written for the benefit of your heart. They're for your inner man. There's not so much in them for your feet. There's not so much in them for your hands. It's for your heart. Because you have the man after God's own heart explaining and describing his heart as it related to the Lord and as it walked with the Lord. So do you meditate upon the Psalms? If you do, Psalm 45, I recommend to your soul. This is a messianic psalm, meaning it is about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the Christ of God. Let's prove that point so that as I go through it, you're not wondering, why does he take the liberty with that verse? I'm not taking a liberty with a verse because the psalm is plain enough that from beginning to end, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not one of those mixed psalms that are partly about Solomon and partly about Jesus. Solomon doesn't fit in here at all. From the, all I need is the first verse to know that Solomon ain't in there anywhere. Because it's a good matter, and there was nothing good about Solomon compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus would put it this way when a man said to him one time, Good master, what did Jesus answer that man? There is only one good, and that's God. And when the first verse tells me that it is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is a good matter, I know that it's about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And from there we could go much, much further. But let me point out a few things. It's good matter is far too much for Solomon or any earthly king, even figuratively considered. It's way too high. It's way too lofty. It's way too spiritual. It's way too heavenly. It's way too divine. Its first words of description can only apply to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Solomon was not fairer than the children of men. He just was a decent-looking man. It says grace is poured into thy lips. We have no record that Solomon was a gracious man. David was a gracious man. The Bible doesn't tell us Solomon was a gracious man. But grace is poured into this king's lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. God did not bless Solomon forever. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, once you get that settled, the psalm opens up. If you're trying to see Solomon in it, the words become worthless and trash. Because if you apply them to Solomon, you denigrate them into the ground. 
Because he never had anything like this. I don't care if he had the daughter of Pharaoh arrayed in precious raiment made with gold from Ophir. She was a pagan and he shouldn't have married her and he was sinning by marrying her. And we don't take a sinful marriage and exalt it as something holy and good. This is a good matter. It wasn't good that Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh. It was a direct violation of the book of Deuteronomy and a sin that cost him dearly. I'm not mad at anyone in this room, but I sure am mad at other men who call themselves commentators. And just forgive my irritation. Solomon was a child of a man. He wasn't fairer than all the children of men. He wasn't known for exceptional grace of speech, but I'll tell you someone who was. I'll tell you a king who was known for exceptionally gracious speech. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you need to read Luke 4 to remember that? Remember when he stood up and read the scriptures and gave their fulfillment in the synagogue at Nazareth? The whole crowd of enemies marveled at his gracious speech. When the rulers of the Jews sent sergeants to capture him, they came back without him. And they said, where is Jesus? No man ever spake like this man. That's your husband. That's your husband. Wherever he goes, everybody says he's got the kindest speech and the most gracious words. Do you believe that about your Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that, sister? This is not about Solomon. Look what it says about him being a conqueror in verses 3 and 4 and 5. About the sword upon his thigh. Solomon didn't even know how to use a sword. He probably didn't even have much of a thigh. He didn't use sharp arrows in the hearts of the people's enemy. David had to whip all his enemies before he was born. And before he took the throne. Solomon was a man of peace. Do you know what the Bible says about Solomon's reign? They dwelt in peace all the days of Solomon. Do you know what that means? There were no wars fought by Solomon. This is not about Solomon. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know of the Lord Jesus Christ as a man of war? And brother, I commend your prayer this morning in our side room. Full of scripture. Very well done. Powerful. Psalm 24. I know you love that psalm. As soon as you started, I knew, I know you love that psalm. Who is the Lord of, who is the King of glory? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that all these fit Him perfectly. I'm, I'm building a stage to open up the psalm. You have to be convinced in your heart and mind that it's about the Lord Jesus Christ so that you don't get distracted and destroy it. He was never a conqueror. He was never anyone like is described in verses 3 through 5. And then, of course, we have verses 7 and 8, or 6 and 7 here, 7 and 8, or 8 and 9 in Hebrews chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul quotes verses 6 and 7. This could never apply to Solomon, not in any sense of the words. Verse 6, thy throne, O God. We are talking about the Son of God here. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Solomon's scepter wasn't a right scepter. It was a selfish, overtaxing, burdensome scepter. Verse 7, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Solomon wasn't anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. He didn't have the Spirit of God without measure, like John 3.34 tells us about Jesus of Nazareth. We don't even know if Solomon had much of the Holy Spirit except when he was writing inspired scripture. I doubt if it was the Holy Spirit that was leading him into the temple of Molech to offer some of his children by pagan brides. I want you to see the object of the psalm. The Apostle Paul took those two verses and you know they couldn't apply to anyone but Jesus of Nazareth because he alone is the Son of God. Thy throne, O God. We are addressing someone that can be called God with a capital G. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Psalms Prince is declared to be the Lord in verse 11. For he is thy Lord and worship thou him. There is no angel or man that will accept worship except the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're to worship this Lord, this Prince. The large posterity described. Expansive dominion of making princes in all the earth. That didn't apply to Solomon. Are you kidding It sure does apply to the church, though. Every one of your children that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are kings and priests to the Lord Jesus Christ and are made princes in the earth in the kingdom of heaven. 
It applies to the Lord Jesus Christ, every word of this psalm. And I'm going to defend my Savior. I know there are psalms where it speaks of Solomon, and there might be a word or two about Jesus of Nazareth, but not this one. Rightly divide the word of truth. Give Solomon his due, which isn't much, and give the Lord Jesus Christ all his due, which is glorious and great. Amen. Brethren, you may have a superscription in your Bible. It's not inspired, but it was put there by the Hebrew scribes that kept Psalm 45, and it was maintained by our King James translators. And praise the Lord, we're going to have a 400-year anniversary for the book you hold in your hands and the spiritual fruit it has bore for 400 years in just a little while. Amen. It's going to be the year 2011. If the Lord will preserve us that long, yes. we ought to do something noble for the Bible He's given us. But if you notice in your superscription... You may not have a superscription in your Bible. That doesn't mean your Bible's a bad Bible. It just doesn't mean it's as complete as other Bibles. And a superscription tells us that this psalm is a song of love. A song of love. It is a condensation of the Song of Solomon. When you read it, especially chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Song of Solomon, you've got a condensation of the Song of Solomon. A loving king and his adoring bride, and the two of them as lovers. And here we have the same thing. In Psalm 45, the psalm has an introduction, a conclusion, and a simple simple division in the middle. The introduction is one verse long. It's verse 1. You should be able to pick that up yourself from reading it a couple times. It has a conclusion in the last verse. A single verse by itself is the conclusion about what ought to be done with what's just been described. In between are two thoughts. The conquering prince and his relationship to his adoring bride. The marriage, the royal marriage of a king and queen, or a prince and a princess. The royal lover, verses 8 through 16, and the conquering prince, verses 2 through 7. The division is so simple. The psalmist, by the inspiration of God, is speaking as God speaking to them in the second person. There will be a few verses in the third person where there's narrative being given to us and to the bride. But it's being addressed to them. Look, it starts right off. Thou, in verse 2. Thou. So it starts right off in the second person where the writer, David, by the Holy Spirit, speaking on behalf of God and prophetically telling what's going to take place, Thou. Goes right into the second person and stays that way. You'll notice in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, it's Thou, Thy, Thine. But we have the Holy Spirit moving through David to write these things that were just filled, filling David's heart. Use this psalm as a gauge of your soul. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Don't tell me you love the truth. I still don't know what you mean by the word truth when you say the word truth, but if I listen to you for a half an hour, I never hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't really care that much about the doctrine of election. It's one doctrine of thousands in the Bible. Doesn't do anyone any good. The devil believes it fully and thoroughly and trembles before it. He knows he's been elected. To eternal fire. He knows that in theological books that's called reprobation. He knows all that. He knows he's a reprobate. He knows he's been reprobated. He knows the doctrine of reprobation is true. So what have we accomplished so far? They all are stepping stones to get to one place. To love, to know, to delight, and to lift up and to exalt and and to serve forever the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is the real elect of God, and there would be no election without the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're elected because we're elected to something He did, so that we can be in heaven and sing praises to Him forever. Election is just a little tiny stepping stone to get you to the real essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yes, I love election in its place, about that big. Because then I have a whole lot of other things about that big that when they're all put together, it is the foundation of the truth of the gospel. But the cornerstone of it and the foundation of it and the glory of it and the goal of it is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we can never get mistaken about that. There are many people associated with our families in churches that believe many of the things we do that talk about loving the truth. And election and predestination are sacred cows to them. There is only one sacred object that ought to get all of our heart's affection. And it's not any particular doctrine. It is the object of all doctrine. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I love the King James Bible. 
But the King James Bible is just an inspired book God gave us to tell us about an object that we ought to love the most. The Lord Jesus Christ. There have been a group of people before that loved the Bible too much. It was the Pharisees of the Jews. They loved its printed pages. They loved its scroll. They strapped it on their foreheads. They put it on their sleeves. They kissed it in public. But they didn't want to find out what it was written about. It's written about the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope I'm making sense. And I hope I'm not disturbing any of you that I'm getting waylaid here. Or that I'm denigrating the gospel of God and all of its doctrine. No, you missed my point. You missed my point, and I'm going to tell you why. If you missed my point, here's why. You don't love the Lord Jesus Christ like you should. That's right. Because if the Lord Jesus Christ is in the central place in your life at the highest pinnacle, all these others are just stepping stones to Him. Right. And I want to tell you something. Get ready for this bombshell. There are Arminians out there that love the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. They've just never been taught what you've been taught about election and predestination. Will you forgive them and have mercy on them? Because I'm going to tell you something. God's going to forgive them and have mercy on them when they're ushered into His presence and He gives them about a five-minute lesson on election and predestination. He may not even have to give it because all of a sudden they're going to realize that it's true. Because I've met them in my life and I know them. And I can read the, book of, I can read the book of, books of the New Testament and find out that there were Galatians that were lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that were all messed up on doctrine too. Paul didn't accuse them of not loving the Lord Jesus Christ. He just accused them of having not held on to his doctrine long enough and they'd been seduced and bewitched away from it to another gospel. That other gospel is another practical aspect of our salvation. Most of the churches of the New Testament had heresy in them. That didn't mean they didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. That didn't mean they weren't elect. Enough about all that. I I didn't want to go down that road that far. Verse 1. Jesus is the truth. Amen. Amen. The truth all points to Jesus Christ. So if we end up talking about truth, but we don't end up at Jesus Christ then either we don't have the truth or we've abused the truth. Right. Lord, help us. Lord, help us see the truth of Psalm 45, that it's all about one man, the one man between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And he's your redeemer. And he's famous. And he loves you. And you can confidently go to him. Can you confidently go to him and bear your soul? We don't bear our bodies, we bear our souls. Can you go to Him knowing that He'll forgive you for anything you've done wrong and take you right back into His loving embrace? And in the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms? That's what Psalm 45 is for. The comfort and glory of your soul. This is the joyful sound of Jesus our Savior. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. And Jesus marries. And He's going to marry us. He has married us. We're betrothed to Him. We just haven't celebrated it yet in His presence, but it's coming soon. My heart is indicting a good matter. This is our doctrine of inspiration. The word indict means to dictate. My heart is dictating a good matter. God the Holy Spirit has taken my heart, David writes here in the first clause, and tells us his heart is full of good matter. It's just full. I'm having all these words and thoughts dictated to me. They make called the dictational theory of inspiration, I turn them to Psalm 45 and verse 1 and say, choke on that, theologians. They make fun of it. You know what they say instead? The verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. What? Let's go with the dictation theory. My heart is indicting. The word indict means to dictate a good matter. It's a good matter because it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good matter because it's about the Lord Jesus Christ's love for you. Yes, there's a myriad in heaven waiting for His look. But you know what? They're not His bride. They're just the ushers. Can you believe it? The angels of heaven are the ushers for the wedding where you're the bridegroom. I mean, the bride. They're in the parking lot. They're valets. They're parking the cars. They're spectators. They're peeking in to see us being married to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good matter. My heart is indicting a good matter. Boy, when the Holy Spirit gets a man, He doesn't just give them a vague idea that they can then put down 
however they think they understood it. It's a dictation. Right. Do you know what we have today called Bibles? The message promoted by Rick Warren and these other Bibles that have come out, they're called, they themselves use the name, the correct name. They're called, it starts with P and then A, paraphrases. Do you know what a paraphrase is? It's a man's novel about what he thinks the Bible means. Right. It's not the words of God. God dictated words. Holy men of God wrote them down as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. When I say, when David's telling us, when I say my heart is indicting a good matter, what I'm talking about are the things concerning the king. The things I'm writing about the king. And this king is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's explaining to you what he means about good matter. What is the good matter, David? What is this good thing you want to tell us? The king. I want to tell you about the king. The king as a conqueror and the king as your husband. I hope you know what every one of these clauses we could stop and preach on Jesus as being the king. We could preach on the good matter of the gospel. And we could take weeks and weeks and weeks to get through Psalm 45. And God will hold me accountable if I'm cheating by trying to do it in two services. I just want to give you the picture for you to delight in it. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm ready to go. If I have a scribe here, I'm ready to speak it. If I don't have a scribe, I'm ready to write it. I've got the words. I can speak them. I can write them. I don't have to sit there and say, how do I put this into my words? Do you know how... Do you know what it's like when you type somebody an email? How should I say this? No, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. This is the doctrine of inspiration. The Bible teaches us everything we need to know. We do not need systematic theologies. Right here it is. But the issue, the work, you can know that what you're about to read is straight from God Himself. This is God telling a love story. This is not Mariah Carey singing one. This is not Hollywood dramatizing one. This is God writing one down for us. And he put it in words. And he wants us to take the words and create the picture from those words. And he starts off by describing this king that he's writing about that is such a good matter. This king is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already settled that fact. He's called God down in verses 6 and 7. What's the first thing we learn about him? Thou art fairer than the children of men. There is no man by any measurement that can ever compare to the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Thou art fairer than the children of men. We sing a song that he's fairer than 10,000 to my soul. Do you believe that? Amen. Do, you, do you know that? Do you experience that? Do you feel it? Are you sure of it? Amen. Do you keep that foremost in your thoughts every day? Thou art fairer than the children of men. Measure him any way you wish. Measure him by his accomplishments. Measure him by his virtues. Measure him by his love toward you. Measure him by the future he has. Now remember, I preached over a hundred of these to you ten years ago. Measure him any way you wish. He's the fairest. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Do you believe that about the Lord Jesus Christ? The psalm is of no value unless each of us look at the words and ask ourselves, is this true about the way I think of Jesus Christ? Otherwise, I'm just making a lot of noise. Is this the way I think about the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I like to say this about Him? Do I like to think this about Him? Do I like to sing this about Him? Thou art fairer than the children of men. God has raised up some fair men. David was a fair man. David was fair in a lot of ways. And do you know what David would say? The Lord said unto my Lord. Yes. yes. And then David would write this. Thou art fairer than the children of men. David knew where his place. You know, when you compare, when you compare one grasshopper to another, they can be fair. one can be fairer than another. But when you compare the Lord Jesus Christ to men, there is no comparison. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Amen. Jonathan Nappy, I'm almost ready to call on you again. Proverbs 22 and verse 11, He that loveth pureness of heart, 
For the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. Kings delight in men that speak right, and they love him that answereth with good words. 16.13, I believe, in the book of Proverbs. Grace is poured into thy lips. The Lord Jesus Christ in the synagogue of Nazareth showed how gracious he was in his speech. The hearts burned in two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus spoke of them, of the Son of God laying down his life and entering into his glory. Their hearts burned. Mary's heart burned when she heard one word. Two syllables. Mary. How about this one? Oh, we sang these words. I wanted to jump up after every song. Didn't you? Didn't you all want to jump up after every song and say, did you see what we just sang? Don't wait till you're better. Just go to him now. Right. I will arise and go to Jesus. Amen. He will embrace me in his arms. I read about a woman that was a great sinner. She said to herself in the words of that song, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. That's right. Amen. Oh, did he ever. He looked at the woman and tore Simon apart. And he forgave her her sins in front of the whole room. Grace is poured into thy lips. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Woman, John 8. Woman, where are these thine accusers? Go and sin no more. Grace is poured into thy lips. If I'm cheating, forgive me. And if I'm cheating, Lord, forgive me. We could take that and exhaust it through the pages of Scripture with examples of the Lord Jesus Christ and His gracious speech. But let's, we want to keep moving so that you have the big picture. What we know at this point is that the bridegroom, that the bridegroom waiting for the bride to arrive is fairer than all the children of men and grace is flat out poured into his mouth. When he opens his mouth and says something, it is the most kind, wonderful, benevolent, merciful, agreeable, cheerful, encouraging, comforting words that you can ever hear. Women, women, you've never been married to anyone even close to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know. Mine certainly hasn't. But you know what? That's why the comparison is here. Thou art fairer than the children of men. The Lord Jesus Christ is so much better. And every husband ought to be willingly give him that place because he isn't even close. And by even thinking to say something otherwise to a wife shows he has no graciousness. Because real graciousness wants to put the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of his wife's life. Grace is poured on the lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Because of the character and the conduct of the Lord Jesus Christ, the permanence of the Lord Jesus Christ's reign is blessed forever by God his Father. This is not a conditional arrangement where Jesus Christ had to earn the throne of heaven. Jesus Christ came and was made glorious by God because he was the incarnate Son of God. But because of his performance and because of what he did, he was was promoted forever to hold that seat and position of royal approval at God's right hand. God hath blessed thee forever. He's raised him up, set him at his own right hand, crowned him with great glory and honor. Jesus Christ is the blessed object of God's favor. God hath blessed thee forever. This is not Solomon. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. This is the Lord Jesus Christ after his ascension. When he had proven that grace was in his lips. When he had proven that he was the fairest of ten thousand and fairer than the children of men. Verse 3. In the second person. But God, through the prophet, David, speaking in prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty. That's the Lord Jesus Christ as the captain of the Lord's host. He's the Lord of hosts. The hosts of heaven are all the angels of heaven, and they report to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's their captain. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh. He is a conquering prince. He is a man of war. He is a God of battle. He is a Lord of battle. Psalm 24 tells us these things about Him. When you go into Revelation 19 and see that word picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, He's on a white horse leading a great army. He has a two-edged sword coming out of His mouth. His name is on His thigh. Here, the sword is on His thigh. Go forth and conquer. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O Most Mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Because this prince... 
fairer than the children of men, is the most glorious, conquering prince the universe has ever imagined or witnessed. That's right. Amen. Every boy grows up loving to read about military heroes, hearing about them. If they don't read much, they hear about them. We love great heroes, conquering heroes. The Lord Jesus Christ is the conquering hero of heroes. Gird thy sword upon thy side, O most mighty. Do you know what that means? No peers, no competitors, no adversaries that can stand before him. He is a king against whom there is no rising up, which the Bible tells us is a very comely thing. Very beautiful thing to behold. It's right to look at that kind of thing and rejoice in it. Because the Lord said the lion is a beautiful creature. And that a king against whom there is no rising up is a beautiful being. And the way he carries himself. He goes forth with a sword on his side. Everyone knows he's going to come back victorious. Men have delighted themselves in King Arthur's. And Lancelot's. But those are all jokes. And hallucinations. Compared to the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When he goes forth to defeat his enemies and brethren, he has enemies and there are enemies as well. There is the devil and his angels that are our enemies. But when the stronger man goes forth against the strong man, the crowds cheer because the stronger man is going to come back victorious. Oh, most mighty. The devil. Are you kidding me? He's already made an open show of the devil triumphing over him at the cross. An open show of the devil. Take, Take me on. I'm humiliated. I'm humiliated. Take me on. I'm a man. He made an open show of him. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. But the reason Zion is so glorious is because of the prince that reigns there. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the glory of Emmanuel's land. Verse 4, in thy majesty ride prosperously. In that majesty. Majesty is royal beauty. All the things that make the trappings of a king. The horse is special. Everything about the man is special. All of his armor is special. The ensigns are special. The banners are special. The swords are special. In thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ rode forth prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ only spoke truth. He once stood before a governor of this world named Pilate, and Pilate said, what is truth? He couldn't even explain to that man, because Jesus was the truth, and Jesus came to bear witness of the truth, but that man didn't even know there was such a thing as truth. And neither do our institutions of higher learning today. But we have the truth, and Jesus Christ speaks the truth. He is the faithful and the true witness. If you want a a husband that will always tell you the truth, and will always be true to you, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he rides forth prosperously against lies and against heresies and against deceptions because he is the truth. And that's what makes him so prosperously. Put on your majesty. Ride prosperously because of these three things. Truth. No lie deters him. No deception clouds him. He is not moved at all by the imaginations of men or devils. Then meekness. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to the death of the cross. He humbled himself to be born the the, the, the child of a poor servant, a poor carpenter, a poor mother. He humbled himself. He was meek. He spoke meekness. The Apostle Paul referred to his meekness in describing his own ministry, that he wanted to do it with the meekness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is no longer meek in that sense of the word, but he's meek toward his people. He puts up with us. And he accepts us and he's not ashamed to call us brethren. And to call us brethren takes some level of meekness. But that's also because we're going to be glorified one day in his presence. He rides prosperously. What made Jesus Christ so great? The Bible tells us. What made him prosper? What was part of his majesty? What made him so beautiful? Truth, meekness, and righteousness. Everything Jesus ever did was right. Everything he spoke was right. As defined by the God of heaven. That's what righteousness is. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. He went out to defend righteousness. He went out to defend the meek of the earth. He went out to defend the truth of God. And he defended those three things. He defeated the devil, who was a devil of pride, and a devil of wickedness, and a devil of lies. He defeated the enemy of truth, and meekness, and righteousness. Thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. The right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ was going to do some magnificent things in defeating and destroying the works of the devil. In destroying death. Don't we sing, he tore the bars away? Do you think he used his feet or his right hand? Come on. Follow your own metaphor. He tore the bars away. Thy right hand. Thy right hand by taking his sword. The right hand by drawing an arrow. I'm sorry about you left-handers. You're in a minority. That's why the Bible usually speaks about right-handers. But it's the right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Terrible things toward his enemies. Oh, yes. Don't you love peace? Do you know how the Lord Jesus Christ makes peace? He makes peace with God by offering self as a substitute for us. But against all our enemies, he just destroys them by terrible things that his right hand does. Do you want a military hero? I give you one. The Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He rode into the jaws of death and hell. You can go ahead and memorize the the charge of the light brigade. They didn't know anything about hell. I memorized that stupid poem in the sixth grade. And the stupid 600 that rode to their own deaths. The Lord Jesus Christ rode into the jaws of hell and death and the grave and the devil. And returned victoriously. Why would we want to sing a poem about 600 men that foolishly committed suicide? Into the valley of death rode the 600. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but you can go home and type in charge of the light brigade and learn about it, but you don't want to. Why not read about the Lord Jesus Christ charging into the jaws of death and into hell for us? Yes, and returning victoriously. His right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Oh, there's a place for memorizing poems like that. Please don't send me. (laughs) Nobody would. Nobody would. Thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. I can still say that dumb thing. Thine thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. This is the the one coming from Boaz with his garments dipped in blood in Isaiah 63. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 19 with the horse dripping with blood. His arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. He doesn't miss. He's not wounding them in their left arm. So they go home to a hospital, get it repaired, and are fighting again in six weeks. His arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The people fall under him. He destroys them. He's destroyed all his enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he'll destroy that. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want a conquering prince to be your husband? Do you want a prince against nobody can stand up? You can go anywhere and if anybody picks on you, this prince will put them down. This prince with a look of his eyes that are as a flame of fire will put them down. This prince with a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth will put them down. This prince with his bow and his arrow will find a, his heart, enemy's hearts and put them down. They'll all fall under his feet. You're married to royalty. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He has no enemies that can stand before him. He is victorious in every military or battle that he engages, military conquest or battle that he engages in. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my beloved. Do you, this is my beloved. I don't want to read about some dysfunctional man named George Patton. Come on. I want to read about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How successful is he? Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Amen. Who said that? There's only one being that can say that and put him on a throne that is forever and ever and can address him as God like that and give him a throne. And it's God, the God of glory and the God of heaven, Jehovah God himself. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. The scepter was a decorated stick that a king would hold covered with diadems that was an emblem of a king. And the emblem of Jesus Christ's kingdom is righteousness. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. You've been a wonderful and perfect king while you were on earth. 
Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. There are fellows in heaven. There are angelic servants and there are saints, the spirits of just men made perfect. They are his fellows. But Jesus has been anointed with the Holy Ghost above all of them. John 3 and verse 34 tells us that. God gave the Holy Spirit without measure to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had the Holy Spirit within him so that every word he spoke was spiritual truth. The words that I speak, they are spirit and they are truth. John chapter 6. That's how successful he is. He's at the right hand of God. He is a man. He has lived a human life for 33 and a half years. He knows every temptation that you face. He hears every cry that you make. He has the power to defeat any enemy that you have. He has the riches to pay for any need that you have. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's fairer than the children of men. And he sits in the throne of glory forever. Through verse 7, the conquering prince. Beginning at verse 8, he changes his garments. He's no longer wearing battle swords and having arrows that are sharp. There's nothing sharp about him now. It's all tender. He's in garments that smell of special, special fragrances of the Old Testament. So we have a dividing point here. The conquering prince, verses 2 through 7. The royal lover, verses 8 through 16. So we come to a division in the psalm. Do you love the King of glory? Who is the King of glory, Stephen? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the King of glory. The Lord mighty in battle. O most mighty, put on your sword. Take your bows and arrows, ride off on your white horse, defeat all our enemies, and come back so that we can have a marriage without any enemies there to disturb us. The devil will not be in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb, bringing up your past sins, because who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? He's been thrown out of heaven. There will be no enemies. We will put the enemies under our feet, and with the Lord Jesus Christ, we will judge angels themselves, and we will trample Satan under our feet through the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I've got one enemy left in life. It's death. He's already destroyed it at the cross by showing you that he has the power over it. He rode into death and rode back. Amen. He tore the bars away. Amen. You say, why do I have to die to get rid of that sinful body? Amen. So that he can plant that body in the ground and raise it a glorified body. Amen. That's why. Death has already been destroyed. Right. Death will officially and formally and finally be destroyed when the resurrection occurs and he shows that he has power over every body that has died in 6,000 years. Amen. And he's just waiting for that moment. It's not that he needs more power. He's got all the power now. But for the timetable of God to play out the way that God has chosen, he's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. And it's the long-suffering of God that we will hear this message this day, repent and love the Lord Jesus Christ more. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.